You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Matthew chapter 6, third week, uh, teach us to pray. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Um, and we are in, uh, I'm going to look at two bits of it this morning. We have looked at it the last couple of weeks, and um, we've looked at, just to remind you, so if you, if you know the Lord's Prayer, if you grew up with the Lord's Prayer, um, it is where Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. It here is, it's in here in Matthew 6, it's also in Luke chapter 11. And he begins the teaching in Matthew 6 by instructing the disciples how not to pray. And then he says, this is how you're supposed to pray. And then he says, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and then, that, that's as far as we've made it. This morning I want to look at, um, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then we're also going to then skip down, and then if you'll notice in verse 13 and 14, so we'll look at next week, um, well, 13 is uh, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. We'll look at that next week. But in 14 and 15, you'll notice, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive. Forgive your trespasses. So we're going to deal with that this morning. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says that? To, to begin, though, um, I, want to, uh, I want to talk about what I, one of the greatest moments I've ever seen uh, in uh, sports took place this week. Uh, it was a Shakespearean tragedy is really what it is. It's, it's a beautiful disaster if you will. I, 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 I wept, I cried, I cheered, I, uh, my, my heart breaks and soars with, uh, uh, with gladness. Uh, I have a 16-year-old son who uh, has never seen the Dallas Cowboys be any good. Uh, I keep telling him, like, no, I'm serious. I've seen two eras of them be good. And he's like, I don't believe it, Dad. I'm, I don't believe it. He's tried twice to bail on me. I'm like, no, I promise, stick with me. They even used to have a great owner. But, but this week, um, Tony Romo, who, man, I'll tell you, I'm a Tony Romo fan. My brother can't stand him. I don't know why. Um, it's probably because he's a pagan. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I've always been a Tony Romo fan. I mean, I've rooted for him. He's just, I mean, he's great. I mean, I, th- I think he's a great guy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's a sorry rat, but he... But he's always seemed to be, you know, for the Britney Spears period and the Mexico thing. But anyways, other than that, I mean, he seems to be like a good guy. I mean, he's, I mean, he's always played hard. He's, he's always, I mean, he's got great stats. But I mean, he's a guy who has always been on the wrong end of the, of the deal, of, of the dealt hand, Right? I mean, you know, my, Jay and I, we talk about, man, if, when they ever do the, you know, the ESPN, you know, 30 on 30 of Romo's career, I mean, what's the opening scene? Is it the, is it the fumbled snap 
in 06, you know, when, they, when they're going to beat Seattle and, and he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's holding for the kick and he, and he fumbles it and they, and, they don't, and they don't go. They miss the wild card. I mean, that was the year. Is it that one? Or is it this year, the third game of the preseason in the first series that he goes out and it's, it's the year, it's the year. And the second snap, he breaks his back and it just, oh, he just, just devastated. I mean, I don't know, devastated, that's a big term, but you feel that. But he had this great speech. I don't know if you saw it. You can look it up on YouTube if you do things like that. But here's what he said. I, I'll, get on, I'll get on with it. But it's, he, he says some really great things. But, but I'll, I'll highlight just one thing that he ends up saying. But I want to read it in context. And then I'll, I'll, I'll try to make a point. I'll, I'll try to make it. I'm not just indulging my Romo fanboy uh, here. It really is great, though. I mean it. He said, to say the first half of the season has been emotional is a huge understatement. Getting hurt when you feel like you've had the best team that you've, that you've ever had was a soul-crushing moment for me. And, and through it all, you've had a tremendous amount of guilt on having let down your teammates, your fans, your organization down. After all, they're depending on you to bring them a championship. That's what quarterbacks are supposed to do. That's how we're judged. And then here you are, you're sidelined and without any real ability to help your teammates win on the field, and then you're forced to come face-to-face with what's happening. Seasons are fleeting, games are more precious, chances for success diminish, your potential successors arrived and you have to start all over, you almost feel like an outsider. It's a dark place, probably the darkest it's ever been. You're sad and down and out, and you ask yourself, why did this have to happen? And it's the moment that you find out who you really are and what you're really about. And then he says this. This is the point. He says, you see, football is a meritocracy. You aren't handed anything. You earn everything, every single day, over and over again. You have to prove it. That's the way the NFL, that's the way football works. And then he goes on to give props to Dak Prescott and he says, I want to be out there more than ever, and, but, but I don't want to be a distraction. And then he says all the right things. And... You see, some of us know exactly how that feels, don't we? I mean, some of us haven't had the luxury of failing and making $20 million in the process. I get it. But even that proves the point, doesn't it? That not even $20 million can salve the disappointment and the guilt and the, and the shame and the dark place, can it? Of what could have been. I mean, we know what that feels like. For many people, that completely sums up the Christian life. Beat down, guilty, ashamed, 
feel like we've let everybody down. And that's because we feel like Christianity is a meritocracy. And the great thing is, it isn't. And I love football. But I'm so glad Christianity isn't football. Christianity is Christ, pure and simple. It's about what has been done in Christ. And we are dependent upon Jesus every moment of every day for everything, always, now, and forever. I'll say it again. We are dependent upon Jesus every moment of every day for everything, always, now, and forever. And we need to be reminded. And Jesus loves us enough. He, he loves us so much to remind us. So much that in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in the middle of his walking with the disciples in Luke's gospel. He grants them a prayer, 30 seconds long, that when I was five years old, I could memorize, even in the King James language. Isn't that beautiful? And, and, and the more we truly understand it, not just by rote memory, but the more that it sinks into us, I'm telling you that the more that I've the more that I have let this wash over my soul over the last few weeks the more I am so grateful for the depth of the truths that are here Take this Matthew chapter 6 verse 11 Give us this day our daily bread So our, our daily bread it's this hard phrase that to translate to this language. The only time this language is used like this, it probably means give us that which is necessary for our existence. And, and, and we're praying it daily. Give us that which is necessary for our existence today. That bread, this, this um, staple food of the day, at the same time, it's not confined only to bread. All the things that are needful for the body, maybe also for the soul, maybe includes this. The things that are needful, I, the things that I, I need. The, the prodigal son, it, as he's laying in the pigsty, he, he remembers that the servants have enough bread, more, more than they can eat. The, the kinds of things that came to his mind when he had nothing. And, 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 it, and it causes us to stop and to think for a second, where do we go for our bread? Where is it that we go for our bread? And this prayer confronts us with that reality. It's a statement that we have to be confronted with. Where do we go for our bread? This prayer is a statement, it's a confession of our full dependence upon God. For the basic needs of our life. Dependent upon God for all things. Now listen, it's hard for us to relate 
to what this would have meant for somebody in the first century. That dependence upon God would penetrate to the depth of your next meal. See, we tend to have a certain amount of things well in hand here in the West. I mean, up to a designated point. Well, we have a certain amount of things well in hand up to a designated point, and we want God to handle the big stuff. What that means is that we don't want him to meddle in the stuff that we can handle. We want him to handle everything else, and we don't want him to intrude in the stuff that we can handle. We just don't want him to inconvenience us with the big stuff, and we don't want him to meddle in the stuff that we can handle. That's really kind of how we operate. See, a pre-luxury world had different sensitivities. They would have taken the prayer, something to mean like this. One writer says it this way. Enough to sustain, not enough to pamper us. Enough for comfort, not enough for display. Enough to free us from needless care, not enough to free us from wholesome dependence upon God. Notice one other thing. The plural number of this prayer. Our dependence upon God is not limited to ourselves. It extends to others. We feel divine, divine dependence for the community of, the, of believers. We also feel a divine dependence for the community we live in and the world around us. So that in our prayers we come thinking and naming not only for our needs, but the needs of others as well. The petitions, the supplications, the, then, then, then we pray for our daily bread, but we pray for those that don't have bread. We pray for those that are hungry. We pray for those that, um, uh, for, for the physical needs of others, not just me and my, but us and ours. That's the continual language of this prayer. It's, it's, it's a prayer that, when prayed thoughtfully, gives us a heart for people around us. It gives us a heart for those in need around us, for the poor among us, a compassion and a generosity. Here's one question. Why pray for our daily need if God already knows our need? Verse 8, it tells us God already knows our need. We do not pray these things because God does not know these things. We pray them because we are in a father-son, father-daughter relationship with Him. The values, the touch, or the contact with God. Well, God knows all the needs... He delights in meeting our needs. And while God is never depleted of a resource, He's never depleted of grace, God desires the relationship. He, he wants to dwell with us like a father with a child. If God gave us all we needed in one lump sum, like we came into the life, said, okay, I'm looking at you. You're going to live about 86 years and 212 days and Seven hours and 18 minutes and 42 seconds, here's about what you'll need. 
then we would mistakenly, mistakenly think that then we were the source of our own provision. We would then worship the gift and we would forsake the giver. That's how we are. That's why we pray daily. That's not, we're not weekly, not monthly, daily needs. We are not to think of living a day without going to God. Not a day without dependence upon Him. We must go daily for provision. It reminds us that, that our idea of nourishment probably needs to be adjusted, doesn't it? If it's been several days or weeks or months or years and I haven't gone to God in dependence for my daily bread, I probably need to adjust my idea of what nourishment is. When we go to God for our daily bread, what, what we do is we go to battle with the seeds of selfishness in our heart. We go to battle with the seeds of greed in our heart. We also find a way to the depths of the cool springs of joy and grace and peace. Give us this day. Our daily bread. Great. Then he goes in verse 12. And. Notice the and. These are connected. And. Daily and. Our daily bread and. Forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. The, the admission here is that we are in debt to God. So simply what this is, is this is naming our sins. J Jesus ne never prayed a prayer of repentance for personal sin because he never sinned. It's one of the only prayers Jesus never prayed. And it's the one that we need to pray all the time. So, so here what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us to pray about our sins. So let me explain this for a second. Sin. Um, there's omission and commission. Let's say it that way. Omission is when we don't do what we're supposed to. Commission is when we do what we're not supposed to do, very simply. And Jesus here is speaking in terms of, of debt. What Jesus is saying is sin of omission, sin of commission, we're, we're occurring debt. We're accruing debt to God, all right? You owe him. And imagine that if um, at the end of every week or the end of every month, you received a statement from heaven, and that was your spiritual debt. At some point, you just need that to come electronically, because they just have to show up with trucks in front of your house. Man, I'm way behind. There's no way I can pay this back. Every month it gets worse. We are in debt 
to God. And sometimes we're not even aware of it because we don't see it in terms of debt. Now that's what he's saying. Forgive us our debts. So there's several words the Bible uses. This is, this is one of the words. Jesus is the ransom. He's the payment. Jesus is God. So he comes to live a life without sin in our place. He dies to pay our debt to God. He rises to give us salvation, forgiveness. He gives us a new life. The Holy Spirit comes, indwells us. We are new people, new creations. What it means is that Jesus has come. When you receive Jesus, or your past, present, future debt is canceled. It's forgiven. We do not pay God back. We cannot pay God back. Back. We cannot pay God back. It has been paid. Okay? Now, so what about the second part of verse 12? And then again in verses 14 and 15, what do those verses mean? If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it's a conditional statement. So what's the condition? What's at stake? So, these are real terrifying words, right? I mean, they strike fear in the heart of believers. What does it mean? If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. These are words that have been abused, I think, by both well-meaning and ill-meaning people alike for a long time. So let me clarify a few things. One, the interpretation of these verses cannot mean that I am saved because I have forgiven. The interpretation of these verses cannot mean I am saved because I have forgiven. You'd have to throw out the rest of the New Testament for there to be a meritorious work of your own doing that preceded and made your salvation possible. Meaning your salvation is in no way dependent upon anything that you've ever done, are doing, or ever will do, ever, period. So it cannot mean that. Cannot. So let me say it this way. It is not a prayer for judicial or eternal forgiveness. In other words, this is not a prayer of salvation. It is a prayer being prayed by those who are already believers. That's settled at the very beginning of the prayer. Our Father. It's a prayer of paternal forgiveness. 
a prayer of forgiveness, a, a child to his or her father. is not a prayer of forgiveness, of, of, of salvation. That's not what's at stake. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's warning that a believer with an unforgiving spirit, not that he or she can lose their salvation, but he's warning that a believer with an unforgiving spirit can seriously impede fellowship with God their Father. The, the verb not forgive applies to this present life, not a final verdict. Now, I do want us to feel the weight of the warning for a minute, though. Because this is an issue, and Jesus knows it. I mean, he knows the human heart. I mean, he knows our tendency towards bitterness and blame shifting. and He knows how we nourish hatreds and cherish animosity. And he knows how we cling to grudges. And Here's the truth. We all sin, and we are sinned against. And when we sin, we need to confess our sins to God every day. And we thank God that His Son Jesus has canceled the debt. And when we are sinned against, we need to forgive. We need to forgive that the Greek word here literally means let it go. When we forgive somebody who sinned against us, it doesn't mean that we deny that they have sinned against us. It doesn't mean that we are accepting the sin that was committed. It doesn't mean that we're overlooking it. It doesn't mean that we're diminishing it. It doesn't mean that we're denying it. It doesn't mean we're saying, well, it's, it's fine. It's okay. It, 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 it doesn't mean that we partake in any nonsense. I'm not saying that. In choosing to forgive, what we're saying is, I'm choosing to give up a right to seek vengeance. I'm choosing to give up the right to exact my own wrath. I, I'm choosing to give up the right to seek my own version of justice I'm choosing to wish God's best for you. 
It doesn't mean that if a crime's been committed that you don't call the police. You do. doesn't mean that if a child's been molested that you don't report it immediately. You do. It doesn't mean that if a person continues and remains unsafe, that there are boundaries in place, there are. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. Forgiveness means I no longer am going to hang on to an anger that will lead to and turn into a bitterness. I no longer am going to work up an energy that seeks ill towards you. I am wishing God's best for you. Reconciliation comes, can be sought, can be worked through. That's a two-party endeavor. Sometimes it takes mediation. Sometimes it takes a third party to come in and work that out. Those are not always the same thing. But to forgive is to let that go. Now, why do you forgive? There's a couple of reasons to forgive. One, God forgives us. So we forgive others. So people would see the gospel of Jesus in us and through us. It keeps us, also, it keeps us from bitterness. Bitter people are sad, lonely. It devastates us. Boy, we, you know, bitterness starts on the inside, and you know what happens? It invariably works itself out on the outside. Usually we're more conscious of the wrongs done to us than we are the wrongs we've done. Do you know that? We tend to minimize the wrongs we've done. When we hurt others, we say, well, they're just oversensitive, they've blown it out of proportion. When people hurt us, we tend to exaggerate what they've done. The result is isolation, bitterness, breach in community, Genesis 3, deja vu all over again. Let me just say this. If you're struggling this morning with, with forgiving, the place to begin is the desire to forgive. Forgive. Sometimes forgive and then continue to forgive. Desire to forgive. It's a process. Bitterness, hatred, animosity, sometimes they recur. Even though they've been forgiven. Sometimes you have to forgive again. This idea that sometimes you just forgive and you forget. I mean, this is a myth. If it happens, it's a great gift. I don't know that human beings always have the capacity to forgive and to forget. Sometimes you have to forgive. And then, season rolls around and the weather changes. And you're like, oh man, i got to do that all over again. 
So do it again. Forgive again. Confess your unforgiveness. It's a great place to start. Bow your knees. Say, Lord, I'm having a very difficult time forgiving. I'm having a very difficult time wanting to forgive. Help me. It's a great place to start. He will. Oh, he desires that for you. The first place to begin to loosen the grip on the grudge that has the grip on you. Here's the deal. Your capacity to extend forgiveness, to to grant forgiveness, to, to forgive, it reveals your capacity to receive forgiveness. If you're a bitter person, you, you hang on to grudges, you nurse wounds, you cherish the stories of the wrongs done to you, you have a very difficult time comprehending the heights and depth and width and breadth and grace of the love of God. As a forgiveness to the Christian, one writer said, is like breathing. Constant and life-giving. What we breathe in from God's mercy, we express to others. Inhale, exhale. Forgive us as we forgive. As we forgive, forgive us. Now we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This prayer that Jesus prayed at every single point. Adam failed. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. At every point, you can see Adam's failure. The bread provided by God, he did not seek. He sought that which was forbidden. When confronted with his sin, you know what he did? He turned and he blamed. He did not hallow God's name. Jesus comes along. He is the greater Adam. He's the true Adam. He's the, he's the greater. This prayer, Jesus is the answer to the prayer. He's the answer to every problem in the garden. He is, he is the solution to everything broken the redemption to everything that was undone. In fact, the prayer is the 
like the echo of our garden past. It's like the sonar of our eternity future. Father, glory, kingdom, will, daily bread, forgiveness. It's great. It's great. I want to encourage you this week. You're going to have an opportunity with your families, with your friends, maybe quiet, maybe raucous, maybe people you love, maybe people you're dreading to be with. Gather around. Hold some hands. Pray together. Give thanks. Maybe say the Lord's Prayer. Slowly. Our Father, who art in heaven. And know. Know the pleasure of your Father. Know the joy of your Savior. And give thanks. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Bethel. We'll see you next week. And watch the watch the cowboy game. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thanks for the time we've had. We we love you. You are so gracious to us. Thank you for the precious and the timeless truths of your word. Father, we thank you that you meet us here even this morning. We thank you that this relationship with you as our Father is not a meritocracy. But Father, it is pure grace. We give you thanks. We hallow your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.